Okay, so we are in uh, the Lent season of the Christian calendar. We started that just as a church last week, and we are, we're dipping into the Lent season this week and next week before we jump into the Easter story the week after that. And so we're going to be reading together from John chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through to 38. If you've got a Bible with you, why don't you pull that out now? Otherwise, the words should appear on the screen behind me. Let's read God's Word together. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And after he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. And on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and she went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been there with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. But when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. And we thank God for his word as it still speaks to us today. Lots of you will know that for quite a while I worked for the Alpha Course um, 
And for those of you that have ever worked for a parachurch organization, right, there's some here today, um, you'll know that a, big, that, some, that a part of your job, sometimes a bigger part than you'd actually like, ends up re- revolving around finances, right? There's points along the way where you're like, goodness, we need money to make this thing work. Uh, and, and it happens to be that you have to go out and find it for yourself when you work in parachurch. Now, most of the time I find uh, that part of the job is absolutely fine. But every now and then, you'd think up some sort of idea or dream that, and realize pretty quickly that you didn't have the money to make it a reality, right? That's kind of how it works. You're like, we could do this. And eventually somebody, usually in finance, right? It's an accountant. They're always killjoys. Sorry if you're an accountant. It's like, you don't have the money for that, mate. And then that means you have to go and find the money, right? So a number of years ago, Helen Warnock and I, who's here today, uh, bounced an idea off each other uh, while she worked for SU. And they worked in schools and we worked with Alpha. And the dream was we'd put somebody in schools running Alpha, right? Big issue was we didn't have the money to do it. We were about 30K short to make it a reality, okay? So we didn't have anywhere near the money to make it happen. So what we did what any self-respecting Christian leader does. You start thinking about who on earth you can get to pay for your ideas, right? So we start thinking about, well, well, who, you know, do we start looking at trusts or do we start doing like a fundraising campaign? And we started thinking about all of those sorts of ideas. And so Helen and I found ourselves one day out for lunch with a high-level businessman sharing about the vision. Um, and I mean, when you're in like trying to get a businessman on board mode, you're like sharing passionately, right? You're like, you know, you're preaching the gospel at this guy while you're eating your chicken goujons, right? So we're like going for it about what we're going to do with Youth Alpha in schools. And we're talking and talking and talking with him. And it was going great. And then we get to the end and he he finishes up eating his dinner and he says, this sounds amazing. Thank you for sharing with me today and thank you that I get to play a part in it. And then he reaches down and he comes across the table with an envelope with a check for 30,000 pounds in it. Right there and then. And we did that kind of awkward thing, you know, it's a bit like what you do with your dad whenever you finish lunch and you kind of faux go to pay, but he's like, no, I'll get this son. No, no, dad, I'll get, ah, we did that thing, right? Because this guy's just giving us a check for 30,000 pounds, right? He can pay for lunch. So we were like, no, 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 we'll get, no, 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 we'll get it. And then he just calmly hands his credit card to the waitress and pays, right? So we do that, right? And we leave that day with the full budget for the dream that we had, for the thing that we thought God wanted to do with Alpha in schools in Northern Ireland. Stunned at the generosity of this man's heart and the resources that he had to give us that day. And this whole story that we're reading today from John's Gospel is really all about resources. The story we're reading today is about resources because there are times in this life when only supernatural resources are enough to make the change. There's times in this life when all of your energy, all of your intelligence, all of your bright ideas and all of the stuff that you, that you can do will not be enough to get it over the line. When we reach the end of ourselves, only supernatural resources will be enough when the resource runs out. Because in the end of the day, only supernatural resource can raise a dead person to life, Right? I mean, no amount of you trying is going to get it done, but supernatural resources can. And we stand here today in this space, right slap bang in the middle of a moment that could only ever have happened by resources that were far beyond our own. I mean, for a start, we couldn't afford this place. (laughs) There's like, you know, 50, 100 of us, we couldn't afford this place. But we stand in the middle of something that couldn't have happened by ourselves from meetings where we thought we were meeting people to talk about a completely other building that was nowhere near as nice as this one to show up and then say, well, actually, we're going to talk about this space right through to the vision of a 
presbytery who see this place, who wanted to see this place still live in the Presbyterian family to the extraordinary grace and generosity of a congregation to pass the baton on to phone calls from businessmen who just seemingly wanted to keep giving us money to make this thing happen and a small church community who captured the dream and pulled the most incredible shift. We could never have done this with our own resources. Resources beyond any that we've ever known. And we've landed in today as well. I'm conscious that lots of you are here because we're opening this church again today and and this is a new home and all of that stuff. But I'm also conscious that we land here today in the middle of the Lent season. Some of you will be practicing that. You may be doing it in your own churches. Um, You may be doing it just daily in your own devotional. But we're right in the middle of the Lent season. And the word Lent comes from the Latin root meaning of the word to lengthen. To Lent means to lengthen. It reminds us that during the season of spring, the sun takes a little longer each evening to settle beyond the horizon. And with this, the weather grows a little warmer and life begins to emerge once more steadily. Lent is our connecting point to the season of life. In this season, we are lengthened. To Lent is to lengthen. We're lengthened. But this is also a messy season, right? One day, it's, it's unpredictable. So in this last week, one day there was snow. The next day it was officially known as taps off weather in and around Belfast, right? That's what this season means. And our lives are much the same, right? Over time, our hearts, our souls, when they're left unattended, they get messy, don't they? When we don't tend to them, they get messy. And Lent invites us to deal with the mess doesn't hide it. It doesn't try to cover it up. It doesn't try to just deal with the surface stuff. It's not about quickly cleaning things up and pretending they were never there, nor is it about ignoring the mess. Lent invites us to roll up our sleeves and sort through the debris of our lives. It asks us to drag our full self into the light of day, no matter how dark it may be. We are lengthened in this season. So on this Sunday in Lent, as we swing open those grand doors once again and invite the city to meet Jesus, what is God speaking through this story in this moment to this church and city? Well, I want to say just three things today that I think God is speaking to us right now. And the first is that this story and this moment is all about faith. This story is all about faith. And faith is a peculiar, amazing, bizarre kind of thing, isn't it? When you think about it, faith is kind of a bizarre thing. Faith that can see beyond what's right in front of you. Faith that can speak and can listen. Faith that can turn even the softest person to granite when they need to be and melt even the hardest heart. Faith is a peculiar thing. And sometimes it comes in unlikely places too. We were at home a couple of months or so ago and we were talking in the house one night and it was kind of a Tuesday night or something like that and Joy was on her phone and going back and forth uh, with our friend Jill. And Jill was having, you know, a pretty, just a pretty weak week. And they were kind of talking about it. And, you know, it's not going great. And, and then we finished the text conversation. And Joy and I talked about it. And we prayed for Jill. And that was it as far as we thought. And then the next day, Joy is driving in the car. And Elle's in the back seat. And she's kind of, she does this little dance when there's music on. She kind of does this little thing, right? doesn't matter what the song is. It's the same dance moves, right? So she's kind of in the back seat dancing along. And, and then she just stops and says, Mommy. We need it. So I'm going to try and do my L impression. Mommy, we need to pray, pray to Jelly. She prays to people, right? So, you know, not to God. There's something wrong with her theology. Mommy, we need to pray to Jelly. Dear Jesus, poor Jelly, thank you. Amen. And sometimes faith comes in unlikely places, doesn't it? Sometimes when you least expect it or from the people you don't think you see it from, faith comes. 
And one of the things I love about this passage today is that it contains a collection of characters that most of us know something about, and yet they exercise faith beyond what we might expect. And in so many ways, each of them look like we do in our lives at points too, right? This is what it says in verses 7 and 8. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? So just a short time before, we read it in chapter 10. People tried to stone Jesus because he was affirming that he was the Messiah. Like they actually tried to stone him there. So it's no wonder that the disciples are like, you want to go back there? They tried to kill you. Why do you want to go back? That's crazy, right? And then in verse 16, this is what we read. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas. This is Thomas we're talking about. Thomas, we tell Sunday school stories about and know the phrase doubting Thomas about. The same Thomas who doubts is the same one who right now demonstrates faith. Pure doesn't really know what he's committing to faith. That same Thomas. You know what? If you're someone for whom doubt is a, is a shaping factor in your life, this is the perfect moment, right? Okay, this is the perfect moment for doubt. I mean, they're traveling to somewhere where they nearly got stoned last time. And if that isn't reason enough, right, they're going because their leader intends to raise a dead man to life, right? If you're into doubting, now's a pretty good moment, right? And yet he doesn't. He speaks faith in this moment. You know, Thomas, in so many ways, reminds me of that kid. Maybe you were that kid. He did something at school, something exceptional, almost certainly something terribly embarrassing. And they get labeled for it for the rest of their school days. In fact, beyond that, years later, you'll be out at something and you'll meet them. And then you'll go home and you'll talk to, you know, your husband or your wife or one of your friends. You'll say, oh, I met such and such today. And they'll be like, who? You're like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know that kid? He did this in school, right? They get known for it for all the rest of their lives. Doubting Thomas. And yet here he is, faithful Thomas. You know, maybe you've got something written over your life. Maybe it's even doubt. And I want to say to you, to you today that that doesn't define you. You are not your doubt. You are not your stuff. It does not define you. But your willingness to say, like Thomas did, Jesus, I'm going with you, will. This is about faith. And we see it in Thomas' words, but also we see it in the actions of Martha, right? And again, this is Martha, who we know from other events. In the book of Luke, we read about how Jesus comes to her house, right? And this is what it says. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha. Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will be not, not be taken away from her. Martha has this thing as well, right? The star of a thousand sermons of how you'd rather be a Mary than a Martha. We know her as the one who missed it, don't we? The one that Jesus came to her house one day and she busies herself in the kitchen. Jesus is right there and she misses him. Martha, the one who missed it. And yet right here, she's just lost her brother. She's broken. She's grieving. She's in the dark moments of her life. And yet right in the middle of it all, Martha, the one who misses it, 
This is what she says. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Right as she grieves, right in the middle of the saddest moment, probably of her life, Martha comes out to the one and she believes. I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Faith in the words of one who doubts. Faith in the words of one who misses it. And then we have Mary. And Mary is the picture, right? She's the picture of faith in these moments. This is the same Mary who sits at Jesus' feet while Martha busies herself in the kitchen. The same Mary who washes Jesus' feet with perfume and then dries it with her hair. Mary had lost her brother too. She was grieving and hurting. And yet this is what we read. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and she went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet emerged and entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn. And when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We've got to get that statement, okay? If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Because I think it's so easy to look at it and think that it was accusation, right? It was anger at Jesus. Jesus, what have you been doing this whole time? If you've been here, he doesn't die. What are you playing at, right? It's not that sort of statement. It's the same statement of faith. Her sister spoke out faith in the only one, the only one who could have done something about it from someone who just fell at his feet. Mary's faith was faith that just fell at his feet. And this is the picture for us, for you, in whatever season you find yourself in, to remember a faith that just falls at his feet. No matter where you are, no matter whether doubt is in your life, no matter whether anger is in your life, frustration, no matter whether you're grieving, or whether you're in a moment of real joy in your life, faith looks like just falling at his feet. Faith is the courage to move from wherever you are to be found at his feet. Lord, if you've been, if you'd been here, I believe, I believe, I believe. You know, Lent is about the faith that walks us from the darker seasons into the days of longer evenings. Faith that lengthens us. And there's faith on show in this passage. This is about faith, but it's also about faith in the one who is constantly moving toward us. The one who is constantly moving towards us, right? In the time that the Bible was written, the Roman and Hellenistic thought when it came to gods or deity was what it was that they were above us, right? That's what the thought of the time was. They they were above us, okay? They were elevated above the level of humanity. So they were beyond our intelligence for a start. They were rational and they weren't emotionally involved. They were able to stand above the affairs of humanity, judging and all of that sort of stuff. It's what It's why so often there are just so many stories and illustrations of how people tried all they could to elevate themselves above everyone else to the level of God's. So God was never on our level, right? That's what they thought. Never, never was God on our level. But we read Mary's exchange with Jesus, and she goes to him, she falls at his feet, and then this is what God's word says. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her, they, it's... also weeping. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Just think about that for a second. The Son of God, that, that verse that you kind of hear in jokes and all of that sort of stuff in our culture every so often. Jesus wept. 
the Son of God, the one that in their thought should be high above, not involved, not, doesn't really care, able to judge, rational. He weeps. He weeps. He steps so far toward that he sees their pain, sees their suffering, and he weeps. God was above. To that culture, God was meant to be above and unattached to our affairs. And yet here is Jesus weeping, broken for his friends, troubled because he was face to face with death, which he came to defeat. And right here in the grief of Mary and Martha, Jesus steps toward them. He gets down on their level. God made man, veiled in flesh on our level. But even more than being a God, he comes towards us on our level. With Jesus, it's always personal, right? It's not just he stoops down. It's like he stoops down and he gets right up close into our space, right? This is what it says in verses 21 to 26. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? You see, Martha comes out to meet Jesus as he arrives in Bethany. And they have this exchange, right? It goes back and forth. And Martha believes that Jesus is who he says he is, but it's impersonal. It's broad and it's on the surface level understanding that Lazarus would be raised on the last day, right? It's, it's kind of just on the surface, And this was a mainstream belief in the time. In the end, we'll all be raised is basically what that meant. Yep, one day he'll be raised, Jesus. I get it. I get what you're saying. But that's not enough for Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life. In other words, Jesus is trying to move Martha from an abstract, general, vague belief in a new life that happens out there somewhere, sometime, to a personal belief in him as the only one who can. It's not just that God is on our level. It's that it's personal. And it needs to be personal because he's the only one that can do it. Jesus is saying it's not about believing in resurrection. It's about trusting in him and him alone. I was talking to John Mark Comer when he was over in Belfast last year. And he was telling me about how he meets people so often in Portland who will say, I believe in God. And he is taken to using the phrase immediately to reply to them, really, which one? Because it's really easy to make a broad statement about God, isn't it? It's way more personal to start to talk about Jesus. It's way more personal because this is personal. This is about faith in a God who steps towards us and our response can't be abstract. Why? Because he's the only one with the resources to truly transform things, isn't he? Earlier on in the passage, Jesus is speaking to the disciples, trying to get them to come to Bethany with him. And this is what he says. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. Our friend is dead. That's our thing. But I am going to wake him up. That's his thing. You know, I don't often look at the world and see this awful place, right? I get that there's this narrative in the church that the church in here is really good and out there is really bad and everything you see is doom and gloom and evil and all of that sort of stuff. I don't get that, right? I just don't get it. I don't get that it's a place that we have to shut out and and kind of keep out because I just don't see it. I see so much incredible good and genius and creativity and beauty in our world. God gave us a mandate to create culture, and we have, right? But you know something? 
We cannot ever be clever enough or cool enough or filter enough of our life to ever be satisfied or find a life that is truly life. Only Jesus can do that. There are th- some things that are our thing. And then there's, only, there's some things that is only his thing. Our friend is dead, but I will wake him up. This is about faith in the one who is constantly moving toward us. One who still brings dead things to life. And that's it. That's the crux of this passage, isn't it? That he brings Lazarus to life. A number of years ago when I worked at Carmoney, I had to do sound for an event, right? And uh, it was a large mission agency that was having a big anniversary event in the building at that stage. Now, I'm reasonably terrible at sound, okay? So I'm like zoomed in on everything that's happening. You know whenever you're really good at something? Like Matt Minford is on sound today and he's like checked out. He could be doing a million and one other things because he's really good at sound and he will do the right thing if something bad happens with sound. Me, on the other hand, I'm rubbish, right? So I'm like laser focused on every like little thing that's happening when I'm at the sound desk. So I'm like listening intently to absolutely everything that's happening on the stage that night because honestly I didn't know what I was doing right so I'm kind of watching everything intently and I'm listening to the various speakers and people that are sharing and interviewees and they're telling stories from some of the things that this mission agency has done throughout the years of its existence right all around the world and they got a couple of people up from Africa on stage to share right and this man goes on to share this I I really feel like I should do it in an awful Ugandan voice but I won't right I won't and right and, and they get him up to share right and and he's like I can't remember his name and he gets up and he begins to speak and this is what he says and in that time one of our partners became ill and he got sicker and sicker and then he died and some of the other partners working on the project were just praying and praying and praying and praise God he breathed again and he came back to life and then this man just went on to talk about finances and other things after that and I was like what stop the meeting. I don't want to hear about anything else. You just said someone came back to life and like everyone was okay with it. We sat in a building full of people that just heard about a man who had come back to life and we were perfectly all right about swiftly moving on to finances, right? I was not okay. I was not okay with it because it was extraordinary, wasn't it? It was extraordinary. A man came back to life and that's exactly what we're talking about in the passage about Lazarus. Don't let the wonder of this passage that I'm sure you've heard before just pass over you as easily as it passed over the men and women in that building that night. A man breathed again. A man breathed again. In the book of John, Jesus performs seven signs, right? Water in the wine, cleanses the temple, heals the nobleman's son, healing the lame man, feeds the multitude, he heals a blind man, and then finally raises Lazarus. And all of the signs that that Jesus performed, uh, they point to who he was and what he had come to do. But raising Lazarus was probably the closest one to illustrating this because it was the gift of life, wasn't it? I mean, all the rest of them were amazing, right? But this one was about life. And the thing is that this wasn't even the only person Jesus ever raised from the dead. That's the incredible thing about this story, right? It's not even the first time or the only time that he did it. There were at least two others and himself, right? It's absolutely incredible. And so the account of Jesus raising Lazarus is this one. It's right at the end of the passage we've read today. And this is what it says. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. 
And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It's absolutely extraordinary. And throughout this passage, there's all this talk about time scales. Why, I hear you ask. Well, that's because it was very likely that the journey for word to travel from where Lazarus was to where Jesus was took several days. It wasn't the sort of thing that just took a short period of time. It took time to get a message to him. And Jesus knew that if Lazarus wasn't dead when word left him, he almost certainly was by the time that word reached him. And so he waited. Why? Because in the culture of the time, it was the belief that even when someone died, their soul hovered over the body for three days. In other words, you were dead, but you hadn't quite left yet, right? It was kind of like the body was dead, but your soul was still there, still in the room. So how long did Jesus wait? Four days. He waits four days. In other words, he waited until everybody knew he was really dead. He wanted to wait until the whole world knew he was really dead. That there would be no doubt. And that's the thing about new life like this, isn't it? Resurrection life only comes when something dies. Something has to really die, be really, truly dead for new life to come. Lazarus had to be really dead for there to be a resurrection. And we need that too, don't we? We need that too. We have to die so that life can take hold of us. We have to let go of things, forgive, give ourselves, our whole life, access to Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to transform us. You know what? Corporate life in the city is only going to come through individual death through itself. We're only going to see corporate life out there if we do individual death in here We aren't just here to renovate a building. Just renovating this place will not lead Belfast to life. We need to be a people who renovate our own souls, and that will lead Belfast to life. What needs to happen out there first needs to happen in here. We've got to realize that anything that we want to see out there has got to happen in here first for every single one of us if we want to see that city one to faith. If we want to see life come in unexpected places, then we've got to die in here first because we are roll away the stone people. That's who we are. That's who the church of Jesus Christ is. We're roll away the stone people. And I know it's so easy to doubt that Jesus still brings dead things to life, right? It's way easier to doubt than it is to believe, isn't it? But he does. I got this text earlier this week from Lisa. Lisa's part of our church. She's out in Lebanon at the minute with a team. And we've been praying for her, and, and we were so pleased to send her over there. Uh, and she's out there at the minute, and this is what she texted me. Just, just one day, uh, she texted into our little community group. She said this, Hey, guys, all good in Lebanon. God is blowing my mind through my own personal encounters and also the encounters of others. Today, during our first day at the Syrian refugee camp, two little children were healed of blindness in their eyes. The little girl in the blue, she sent pictures. The little girl in the blue hoodie received healing for her right eye. I saw her when we were leaving and both her eyes were shining. Supernatural resources. Because there are times in this life when what we can do will never ever be enough. 
Extraordinary transformation needs supernatural resources. This is about faith in the one who's constantly moving towards us and still brings dead things to life. Still brings dead things to life. So what does that say to us here today? We're going to respond um, in a little minute with song and and with all that stuff um, and with prayer. But I think there's this little moment in the passage that I think is really speaking to us as a church today. As we think about this, as we really think about what it means to be that people in this city. And there's this little moment, right? Um, because we prayer walked this street, these streets for years, okay? As a church community, when we started, we were really small and basically nobody came. We kind of prayer walked an awful lot, right? So we would gather on a Wednesday night and we prayer walked and it was always freezing. I actually only remember one that didn't rain and wasn't Baltic, but it was, it was great, right? It was, it was great. And we kind of walked around, right? Um, and we prayed this city all the time. And I believe that this move into this place is absolutely crucial. I believe now that this is actually part of of what it is to be us in this city, to be central, to be the church of Jesus in the city now. Because I believe it speaks prophetically about the renewing power of Jesus to Belfast. You have no idea how many people have come through those doors in the last couple of weeks just because they've been open. Just because outside looked a little bit tidier and we had a really good guy do signs on the walls and because there were people around the place, because life started to come back to the building, you've no idea how many people wanted to come in because there was life in here. Something had to die here for there to be new life. I'm not celebrating that. I'm not rejoicing about that. that that's not what I'm saying here today. But what I'm saying is that something had to die for something new to live. And there's this moment, right, There's this moment in the passage as Jesus wrestles with the disciples about whether to go to Bethany or not. And eventually this is what he says in verse 9. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? And that seems insignificant on first glance. But what he's saying here is that the light of the world, right? He is the light of the world. And as long as he is still in the period of ministry in his life, it's still daytime. It's still light. No matter how dark that city might look that he was telling them to go to, right? The same place that nearly stoned him. He's telling them to go back. And he's telling them to go back because he's still in the daylight of his ministry. And that meant the disciples still had work to do. And I think Jesus is speaking the same thing to us today. I think Jesus is speaking the same thing to the very stones of this old place today. That it's still daylight that there's still daylight up ahead and that he still has work for us to do here. He's not done with this place yet. He's not in any way done. It's still daylight and I still have work for you to do. So it's time. This is the time. It's time to believe. It's time to be raised up as a people of faith, right? A people of faith that doesn't let our doubt and our fear and our stuff define us, but walks in faith into faith that doesn't miss it, but will always be a community with the courage to fall at Jesus' feet a people who lean into the God who is moving towards us, whose name is Jesus, right? We're not going to be impersonal about it. We're not going to be a community of the church. We're going to be a community of Jesus here in the city center, walking in the way of Jesus, who are never afraid to lift that name over our doors and over this city. And a people who die to themselves for the sake of the city, so that this place, not just these four walls, but the city might come to life. We're not just here to fill this place full of people. We're here to fill the city full of life. That's what we're here for. That's what this place existed for when it was built. And that's what we're here to do again. You know what? The city is full of things that have already died. Politics. Sorry if you're a politician. I don't think you are. 
politics, the financial system, leaders, leadership, all of that sort of stuff has died so many times over. And we get this moment right now to speak life into those as the people of God. As people caught up in the way of Jesus, as the people of new life, as resurrection people, as people with resources beyond anything that we could get ourselves. That's what we're here for, to lead this city to life.